Hey, welcome to Warhorn Media's Biblical Foundation for Aesthetics. My name is Nathan Hammerson, your humble little media host. I'm sure you, if you're listening to this, know me from other things and from the other three segments of this fine program that you received. Thank you very much for your donation, by the way. And I am here with two of my good friends that I like to discuss movies with. We've got, of course, Pastor Jake Menzel. Hey. And our good friend, Benjamin Solzer. Hello. Hi, Ben. Hi, Nathan. All right. Today, we're talk- we've talked about literature. We've talked about music. We're going to talk about cinema. And we're going to ask our, our standard seven questions that we've been asking. So question number one, what is distinct about the medium? Well, I think... Yeah, so that, I think there are a couple of things that are distinct about the medium. One of the most distinct things about it is how few mo- limitations it actually has. So if you think about literature, it's the written word on a page. If you think about music, it's only what's hitting your ears. But when you come to the theater or turn on a video or whatever, you've got sight, you've got sound, you've got music in that sound. And then above all else, w- with the sight, you have body language and the human face. Mm-hmm. And so you have all of these various ways to express both thought and feeling. So every medium that we've discussed, and even those that we haven't, when it comes to art, art is necessarily placing a limitation on our senses and then allowing us through, by focusing on one particular sense or a combination of them to to see the world in a new way or to see things in, in a different sort of way. So music hits our ears and through our ears hits our emotions. A painting takes away everything but just what we can see. And removes motion as well. And removes motion mm-hmm. as well, yeah. And I, that's a important important thing to add when it comes to cinema. It's not just visual, it's it's motion. And with that, like you like to say, a lot of in a lot of places, it's as as much as anything, it's the the human face and body language that is what is so powerful and potent about cinema. Mm-hmm. I guess if you wanted to Yes, cinema does is so powerful because it's elastic and it contains all these elements. It also contains the written word and that a script is written or in that dialogue's written. It contains you could get you almost say it's a grab bag of like the best of every artistic medium, which is why it's one of the reasons it's so powerful. If you wanted to, you know, if we were in a film theory class and they were trying to reduce cinema to its bare essence, what they would say is it's two things. It's and it's not just this, it's everything that Jake said. But if you if you had to say what is it what what can you take away and you still have cinema well you can't take away the camera there's going to be a camera and I think this is just a helpful way to sort of think about it a little bit yeah. there's going to be a camera and it's going to be focused on something and yeah sure we have movies like 1917 you know the one shot thing but you also can't take away the edit the juxtaposition of images together those are like the two things that have always existed since before sound was introduced to, yeah. to cinema that will continue to exist that if you talk whether you're talking about looney tunes or a gangster drama or some surrealist movie with just a bunch of images an mtv music video whatever you're talking about visual storytelling of this type involves a camera that's looking at something and those images being juxtaposed with other images through editing through editing yeah and in the movie like 1917 is really attempting in a one-shot way, although it's not really just one shot, but in a one-shot way to mimic the effects that you get through editing in other movies, actually. It's just as carefully put together in order to give you juxtapositions without you thinking that there was ever an edit. Right. And in fact, there are many edits in the movie, a lot of it's special effects to make it look like there's not, but it's things like the camera's suddenly going to shift focus, and now we're in a close-up, and then it's going to drift up, and now we're in a wide Mm -hmm. shot. Mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And the reason to kind of keep those things in mind while it's important, I think I think where Jake started was right. Cinema combines everything. But I think we all kind of know a little bit about what music does to us. If you want to sort of start to understand what cinema does to you that you might not notice unless you're thinking about it, you want to start to think about two things. What's the camera doing? Why is the camera doing it? Well, those are the two things for the first one. And then what's the edit doing? Mm-hmm. And why is the edit doing because you put the camera in different places, it tells you different things about what we're supposed to think of the what subject, you're at. what you're looking at. I mean, the classic example of, is you look down on someone with the camera, it puts them in a, in a passive position, it puts them in a weak position. You look up with the camera and they look imposing, they look scary, they look tall. 
So if you're going to indicate that a scary person is coming into the room, you're almost never going to shoot them. You know, Michael Myers in a horror movie or the bad guy that Indiana Jones is going to have to fight or something like that. You're never going to shoot them. Always looking up. Yeah, you're not going to shoot them above because that's going to actually rob them of their potency. You wouldn't want an aerial shot of the big scary guy coming out to swing his sword at Indiana Jones. There's all kinds of theory that goes into this. There's all kinds of things. One, One thing that's interesting in Western culture is that we tend to want our heroes to move. This is just an example of the how detailed you can get. We, we tend to want our heroes to move from left to right. So a lot of times the good guy army will be moving left to right and the bad guy army will be moving right to left. And it's because we're, I think it's because we're, you, know, you, could, theor- you could offer different theories about this, but the one that seems obvious is it's because we read left, left to right. right and we're comfortable mm-hmm. with it. Uh-huh. So if Gandalf's going to lead an army down a mountain at a bunch of orcs, he's going to be coming at them that direction. And it would actually feel off to us it's not that you won't find examples of it but oftentimes it'll feel weird if he's coming the other direction so indiana jones will often be although that that famous truck chase i think is mostly it is um, right, right, to to right to left yeah but the nazis that's are supposed to be off-putting and scary yeah, it's like the nazis are getting away with the ark we need to stop them we need yeah. to turn it around and Indy's, get it back going and therefore india actually is a left to right force just by trying to stop them yeah and a lot of the action <laughs> is actually going to be him being knocked left to right, and then having to make his way against all odds upstream. upstream. And then finally, at the end, he's going to get control of the thing, of of, of the truck, and he's going to drive through a whatever. He's going to drive to his freedom through something on the right, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. You know, he's going to be headed right. So Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of things like this. Another example would be uh, symmetry. Symmetry tends to make us calm, whereas not symmetry tends to make us not calm. So if you want to convey action, then you'll shoot Jake at the top and Ben will be at the bottom or something like that. If you want to convey that Jake and uh, if, that they're antagonistic, you might have one of them more up the frame, one of them more down the frame. If you want to convey that they're best friends, you might have them very symmetrical. Um, so there's just a million choices like that that go into where you play th- place the camera and what you do with it. And then maybe more obvious or easier to think about is the juxtaposition of images. You put two images together, our minds, I mean, it's something interesting about our minds that is intuitive to us because we grew up, we grow up in an age that has this sort of thing. But when they first invented the science of film, it's, they wouldn't have necessarily, I think, even expected that like you see a train and then you, you cut to Jake and you see Jake scream. Like we know, oh, the train's coming for Jake. He's going to get hit by the train. The fact that our minds actually work in that associative way. And can make those jumps. And make those jumps. That's something that people definitely had to learn. And if you look at early film, what you see is a progression of a stage play that is caught on camera mm-hmm. turning into its own medium as people learn to play with the edit, as learned, people learn to play with the cut, as people innovate. And you think about what, you know, we did that episode of Sanity at the Movies on, uh, on Citizen Kane, yeah. how innovative it mm-hmm. was, the idea of him, of the montage. Yep. Yeah, all um, those things. And none, if you watch Citizen Kane now and you're not paying attention, you won't see any, you, you, you might enjoy it, you might be entertained by it, but we won't see anything particularly groundbreaking about it because all those things have just become part of but it, but it was, our right? cinema. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. But people started to experiment in the early 20th century with the juxtaposition of images and it's interesting the kinds of things that you can do you can take the, the famous experiment was a psychological one where you just put a camera in front of Ben and you film him and he just gives a neutral expression. And then you splice it together with footage of a woman playing with a child. And suddenly everybody watches that and they think, oh, Ben, he, he loves his wife. It's so warm. You splice it together with a dog on the side of the road that's been hit by a car and maggots. And suddenly everyone's like, oh, Ben's he's ben, a psychopath. He's a psychopath. Or, or Ben's horrified. You, you splice it together with someone pulling a gun and aiming it towards Ben's part of the screen. It's like, oh, Ben's tense with fear. The art of cinema is the art of those kinds of juxtapositions and the kind of emotional impact that they make as much as anything. And the great directors are the ones that know how to do that, know how to build a performance out of that. How to compensate for the weaknesses of their actors. Of their actors or how to play into the strengths. I mean, have you ever thought about dear listener, how much of a great performance is actually created. When you you start to think about how much we could take one shot of Ben just making a neutral expression and do all kinds of things with it, some of your favorite performances weren't there until they were done 
editing them. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes directors will say the most generous actors, the most giving and humble actors for film at least, are the ones who will not make a definitive choice about the character in the moment, but will give you five or six different ways to edit it together. And mm-hmm. then the director, and then that, that actor has to have a great deal of humility and they have to really trust their director because the director can choose a stupid take or, or choose something that just doesn't work for the story that's being told, or they can choose, put things together brilliantly and make the actor look really, really good. Yeah, A lot of actors won't do that. You know, they, a lot of actors will go out of their way to Prevent do these. the director from making right. be the one in control of their choices. Right? right. I mean, they will even stoop to tricks like I'm going to eat an apple in this scene so that it, if he's going to edit it together, he's not going to be able to cut around when the apple's eaten or something like that, you know, so that he'll, he'll actually have to stick with my performance if he doesn't want the apple to suddenly disappear. That's pretty mean. Um, which it is mean, but actors are famously vain people who have a whole bag of tricks. I remember reading an interview once with the actor Christopher Walken where he was talking about that process with a director. Mm-hmm. He was asking the director, do you want me to play this? Do you want me to play the character like this here and then like this there? Because that seems like two different versions of the character. And the director was like, don't worry about it. Just do what you think is best and I'll make it like cohere over the whole. Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing about that is that, for example, I mean, just again, the, the things that you don't really think about when you're watching a movie, someone might give a fantastic performance and a fantastic take, and it might not cut together with something, or it might not be mm-hmm. the story that the director mm-hmm. actually wants to tell. You might use one of Walken's n- takes that in and of themselves aren't, like as, the throwaway. aren't as good because they help tell the story that you want to tell. So the reason that you see some of these like associations between guy, you know, your De Niro and Scorsese or De Niro and DiCaprio. I'm not Tom bad. Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie. Tom Cruise. Well, that's that's actually a perfect example because I think Tom Cruise Tom Cruise is a very controlling person who wants to have control of everything and he's found somebody that he can obviously trust to realize his vision. To realize mm-hmm. his vision and to make him look good. Yeah, which is something that McQuarrie actually talks about as one of his strengths and virtues as a director. I watched an interview or listened to, can't remember which. And he said, you know, I, I think of myself much more as a kind of guy who comes into a project just trying to help somebody like Tom Cruise realize their vision for this film. Right. And a lot of directors aren't that way. A lot of directors, they've got their vision and you better get on board with my vision. Yeah. Well, we've said this in other places, but maybe that's the other thing to say about cinema is it is by its very nature, just by the cumbersome amount of things that have to happen in order to make a movie, it's a collaborative medium, unlike, I think, any other. I mean, music would come the closest because a series of musicians have to come together and under a director or under, um, not a director, a, com- a conductor or a composer. But cinema is like, let's take the orchestra and then let's add lighting and then let's add a script and then let's add this and that and this and that. And it's all collaborative and people have different you know again you can go to a film theory class and you can hear about the auteur theory which is that every movie actually has a great mind and a single mind behind it and the job of the film critic or film theorist is just to find who that is and see how their vision was being implemented whether it's the director or the producer and then there's people that actually don't believe that that say you know it's actually by its nature collaborative and you really can't say that it's one person. I don't really know where I fall on that or that I feel the need to have to fall anywhere in particular. I don't know. I mean, I, I to me, it's just intuitive that it's both and, and, and also that some people's personalities assert way more influence over yeah. a giant band of people than other guys' yeah, personalities. I mean, I, I think it's, in that sense, the way the debate is framed is kind of silly. I think so, too. Yeah. There's a reason Wes Anderson films feel like Wes Anderson, Tim Burton feel, films feel like Tim Burton, and there's a reason why Christopher McQuarrie <laughs> films feel like fun action films. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like... It, it's that degree of influence that that... It's, right. that, it's that degree of influence. It even seems to be how much they care. Right. And then there's, there's the whole question of, like, how much control does the producer exert right because what jerry bruckheimer's productions are going to have the same kind of sheen Mm -hmm. they're all going to be kind of empty action movies yep yep except for top gun except for top gun of course yeah i wasn't included i mean i thought everyone knew that was excluded (laughs) obviously obviously we don't include cinematic masterpieces in that list no or top gun or top gun (laughs) (laughs) um Okay, that's fair. <laughs> I've never pretended it's a good movie. It just sells a lot of childhood nostalgia, that's all. Well, one thing, one movie that I always kind of have as a placeholder in my mind because it was so big 
when I was a teenager or however old I was when it came out is Lord of the Rings. And those are really interesting movies because it's obviously Peter Jackson's vision. But then obviously what you're actually watching is a man who's just trying to get the movie done. And so (laughs) there's a lot of ways in which it's nobody's vision and it's pretty, it'll be, there'll be these scenes that are pretty well done. And then there'll be these scenes that are really generic. And then it'll be like, well, we needed some action here. And or, or we stumbled like, onto an idea, right. Legolas surfs. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right, it's a thing now. It's a thing now. It's now yeah. a thing. Or, or you have like the second. It's clear that you have like the second unit director, and he had some little idea that he thought was a good idea, and then they kept it. But yeah, it, but it doesn't feel anything like the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's exactly right. You have three directors, and so there's not you know two or three, and and a lot of big budget. That's just one example. A lot of big budget movies are like that. You watch most Marvel movies. And they're going to have an action unit that just films action. And they're going to have maybe a B unit that films some of the B-roll kind of stuff. And then they'll have the main unit, which will just be Robert Downey Jr. goofing off and saying his dialogue. And the effect that that has is that a lot, I I personally like Marvel action, but a lot of Marvel action looks the same, actually. Mm -hmm. It looks like Mm -hmm. we just got the Marvel team in here. The exceptions would be, what's his face, the pervert, um... James Gunn. <laughs> oh, James Gunn, I believe, actually does film every frame of his movies, and they're very distinctive and flavorful. And you, you know, when you've got a James Gunn movie, yep. Taika Waititi, did he? No, I don't think so. I think what you have with Taika Waititi is a guy that's really great with actors. What Marvel often does, which is someone who's a really, really great with actors and has a distinctive flair for doing something, and then we'll just combine him with our usual action thing, and that'll our usual package is what makes it feel cohesive right right but and hopefully sam raimi will give us something different yes i'm hoping i'm hoping i mean yeah. some people have which project did he take he took on the sequel to dr strange multiverse right. of thought. madness yeah. yeah yeah which is a hopeful combination yeah absolutely so i guess in summation if you're when you're watching a movie you have to realize that it does combine everything it combines writing it combines music it combines the emotional impact of theater the two things that are unique to movie, I th- you could argue for other things, but the two that are definitely unique to movie are the camera and the edits. And so you want to start to watch for those things. You want to realize what edit, like if we have fast editing, what is that telling us? If we're cutting quickly, just to, even for a dialogue scene, like how you want to kind of, you don't want to ruin the movie for yourself by making it into so many different disparate elements that you're noticing that you can't just enjoy the story. But you want to kind of notice, like you want to ruin some movies just so that you've practiced. Mm, that's right. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. That's right. I mean, when you when you ruin some movies that way, you suddenly realize that some movies you thought were good are not good, and some movies you dismissed are actually pretty good movies. Well, Changes that's things. Yeah, that's true. And if you want a good exercise, just try watching something without the sound, actually, and you'll suddenly be able to notice. Oh, this is what they're doing because a good director, you know, like you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark without the sound, you'll see all kinds of the things we're talking about. Like the the rhythm is picking up now mm-hmm. to indicate action. You know, you divorce it from some of the storytelling and you can actually start to notice a lot of these things. Yeah. And you start to notice the directors that really uh, lean hard on dialogue or lean hard on uh, score right? versus the directors that really think visually and on that frame by frame level. If you were to go back and do this with something like uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, every moment of that film, I think you'll find, or most of the moments of that film are going to be telling almost everything you need to know visually. Or we've talked about Brad Bird Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. being very much the kind of person that would love his movies to work with no audio whatsoever, first and foremost. And then the audio is just whether it's the dialogue or the score are just that much more potent and powerful. Pixar tends to be that way. They tend to bring on really good visual storytellers. Right. For example. Well, the other thing that Brad Bird reminds me that we haven't said a lot about, it obviously fits into what we've been talking about, but it's simply camera movement is the other thing that it's interesting to note isn't done as much. Somebody like Brad Bird does do it and somebody like Spielberg is arguably maybe the master of the form ever. I mean, Spielberg is great at having a shot that starts and ends in different places, and it tells you something about the story. And it's subtle, you know, it's nothing show-offy. It's nothing that you particularly notice. But, and Brad Bird's really good at that sort of thing, too. It's not just about the juxtaposition of two different images. It's about the juxtaposition within one frame, you know, before the cut. Spielberg's famous zoom. Yeah, Spielberg likes to 
Zoom. I, I think it's fascinating that people don't, you know, you watch something like Lord of the Rings. It is actually mostly a series of static cuts. A quick, a Marvel movie that's done on the quick will be, I mean, they use shake it cam. So I'm not, I don't mean static, like it's locked down. I just mean like we haven't designed a shot where someone's going to move into the frame and that's going to make us have to readjust our focus and someone's, then the camera's going to move up and it's going to, suddenly we're going to be seeing things differently. People don't, a lot of times in modern popular filmmaking, at least put that kind of thought into it. What they do is they just get, they do it more in a style that's more traditionally associated with TV, which is you just get a lot of coverage and you trust that, which, which means you Lots just of over the shoot shoulder. a lot of film, get a close up. you know, let's, let's have two or three cameras running. We'll get Jake's fingers tit tapping the table. We'll get Jake's head. We'll get Ben's head. We'll get their microphones. And then we just have so much footage that we always have something to cut to. And we're sure we can cobble it together in the editing room. Mm -hmm. Which doesn't mean that you can't, I mean, you could design, if you can put in the same effort to design a film that way too. Right. If, if you want, but that's a different method as well than just getting a billion shots. Right. I mean, a good example of someone who doesn't move the camera, who, who does actually just rely on cutting shots together would be uh, David Fincher. If somebody knows, if people know his movies, some of them are uh, not as, uh, nice as others but watch something like the social network it's a fairly appropriate movie and you'll see he's not actually reframing things he is a, he is actually a master of just juxtaposition of different images and he's moving pretty quickly through them but there's so co there, there's a coherence and a vision behind it that mm -hmm. doesn't occur in something like again not to make it a whipping boy i like the lord of the rings movies but you can just tell we're just trying to get this done and we have a bunch of little people actors that we have to combine with big people actors that we have to combine with all these different trick shots and stuff. Like there's just not. How, how do we make uh, Gandalf? Gandalf look taller than Taller everybody. than Elijah Wood. And actually probably the easiest solution to that is just don't have him in the same shot a lot of the time. Not an elegant solution, but one that allowed them to finish some fun movies on some kind of reasonable budget. And so, schedule. And what you'll actually notice is that the Hobbit movies for all their flaws as screenplays are much more elegant actually there's there's a lot of shots that feel more like actually more thought went into the hobbit movies and i think it's because he probably had the time and the money and the didn't have apparently have the time and the money or the inclination to write a good script <laughs> but, <laughs> but he had the time and the money to actually kind of have some fun with it you know and i think the special effects had come along actually it was easier to integrate the big people and the little people the other thing that people should be aware of, probably, the word that you want to know is montage. And we all know what a montage is because it's Rocky working out, right? But a montage is a series of shots that go together that are associated with each other through juxtaposition, but that aren't one coherent spatial series of shots, if that makes sense. Like, we are going to put together not just, there's Jake, he's on the train tracks. Oh, there's the train. But, oh, there's the train. There's Jake at the train station waiting. There's a woman walking in and our mind is able to, even though we're not even in the same location, you know, we, we, we're miles away. We're looking at the train. Now we're looking at Jake. Now here's the train. That's basically montage. And that's something that people had to discover. Like people had to realize we can actually cut between two very different things and people's minds will make those associations. And a lot of what we're doing when we do that is we're condensing time. Right. We're allowing for a lot of, uh, so if you think of a Rocky's a good one or any sports movie, really, you know, if, if you've got like a baseball movie, you have a, a, a season that has 156 games in it. Well, you have to get through all those games. So mm -hmm. what do you do? You, you cut to, oh, we're in this stadium playing this team. Oh, and this time he's sliding in and he's safe. And oh, boom. Now on this one, oh, there goes the ball over the fence. Oh, new teams, new uni uniforms. Boom. Oh, let's throw in a newspaper reel or something or, you know. And then boom, 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 boom. Uh, we've suddenly spanned, you know, a 60 game stretch. And now we're up to the next emotional moment. Yeah. And so sometimes it's just to to cut out length of time or to express the length of time. Sometimes it's to tell actually a really emotional story over time condensed into a couple of minutes. Yeah. And sometimes it's to make like a hammy point. And maybe there's a good example, Nathan, of someone not making a really hammy point, but mm -hmm. like you cut from a panicked mob of people to a herd of sheep in a field. Right. You're like, ha, look, I'm telling you, the people are sheep. And that's that's montage. That's montage, right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, some of the more, some flashy directors, like Ben, uh, I think we can say this, Ben really sure. likes the style, not the content, but the style of a director named uh, Guy Ritchie. Yeah, and I do too. <laughs> and, but there are some movies of his you should never watch, and I don't think most of us, uh, any of 
the three of us would at this point in our lives watch them. Mm-hmm. But so with that caveat, but he did those Sherlock Holmes movies and they're fun. And King mm-hmm. Arthur, Legend of the Sword, I think is the favorite movie of two out of the three people. Yeah. In yeah. This room. My favorite movie of all time. Of all time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Always Easy. comes up in all my lists. <laughs> um, what Guy Ritchie will do is he'll say, he'll have like a guy say, you know what? I need to go to America. And then we'll cut to a two second shot of the guy walking through customs and then a two second little shot of an airplane flying and then a two second shot of the guy with a cold compress on his head and he'll splice <laughs> together like nine things in the space of a couple of seconds nine of seconds, screen time yeah, yeah right. um, and it'll tell a whole story really quickly or martin scorsese is a master of this sort of thing you know the guy it'd be like he was a really bad gangster and you'll see the really bad gangster sitting in a bar and then you'll cut to him executing someone shooting someone in the head and we're supposed to realize like oh we've jumped to a completely different part of his life we've we're telling a different part of a story and he'll make those kinds of leaps really quickly and you can do things that are flashy like that those are the more obvious examples of the kinds of things we're talking about you can do things that are not flashy at all but fun when you brought up, uh, when you used airplane for Guy Ritchie I thought of Indiana Jones's airplane montages Uh right yep Right. You know, we've Just got, goes we're going to pull map. out a map. We're going to like have, you know, some frame in frame stuff happening. Yep. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just an intentional throwback to the slower kinds of montages they had in, in those old serials where it's like, it's that's a really interesting example, actually, because people's minds have sped up and they've, uh, it's not that we're smarter than old people. It's older people or people that came before us cinematically. It's just that we're used to visual storytelling. So Indiana Jones can literally say, I'm going to now, if you're making that movie now, you can say, I'm going to go to Serbia and then we can cut to Serbia. But the old style was, I'm going to go to Serbia. And then we see the guy walking into the airplane and then we see the airplane flying and then we see a map and then the thing shows us the map and then we see the guy get off. You watch the original uh, Dr. No, the first James Bond movie made in 1963, I believe. So boring. (laughs) So much what they call, what what they call, call shoe leather. Like, we are just going to walk, James. If, if you like watching Sean Connery walk places, <laughs> then that is the movie for you. Because they're like, ah, here I am in, oh, it's sort of the Lord of the Rings thing. Yeah. Cairo. Cairo. Last refuge of <laughs> if you monkeys like, who like dates. <laughs> exactly. Right? Not, not for long, though. <laughs> not for long, no. It is the dates. last refuge. <laughs> oh, it'll just be and like. we got a little crossover actor there, too. We got Gimli. Oh, we right? did? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Nice. Man. See how Jake's wow. that free association. The most associated right. of all. Man. But Dr. No will just be like, you wondered how he got from the airport to the airplane? <laughs> well, we're glad you asked. <laughs> he took about 40 seconds of walking. He had See? to flag the cab. <laughs> right. and the cab had to show up and he had to get into the cab and then... And that really is the difference between... Cabby and that we. <laughs> I mean, really, honestly, you'll see. Uh, the one we always like to make fun of because we reviewed it on the bookening is The Big Sleep where Humphrey Bogart goes to a phone gets or uh, what do you call those things pay phones you guys remember yeah. those things he goes to the pay phone he opens it he p- gets in he puts a quarter in he takes the phone he dials the phone he, he dials talks to the operator he talks <laughs> to the operator he asks he asks for the play the person he wants to talk to he gets the person he wants to talk to he says i'm gonna come and see you the person says <laughs> okay he says goodbye he hangs up the phone he walks out he walks out of the bar he walks to his car. He gets in his car. He drives to the person's <laughs> mansion. He gets out of this. The way that you would do that today, you'd say, you know what? I'm going to go see Solzer. And then we just cut, cut to Solzer. Cut to Solzer. And he's, hey, welcome to my office. Because <laughs> uh, that's how Solzer talks. The, one of the really famous revolutionary shots, and it's really cool, I love it, is in Lawrence of Arabia, where Lawrence is about to go to the desert. And he's still in England at the time. And he says, I'm going to go to the desert. I don't remember exactly what he says, but he says something portentous and cool sounding. And then we cut to a close-up of a candle and he blows out the candle and then hard cut to the sun in the same location in the frame shining over this vast desert. And suddenly Mm. Lawrence of Arabia is in the desert. And that was pretty audacious feeling at the time. Nowadays, you'll see that sort of thing a little bit more Mm -hmm. where we'll just cut from one place to another. Nathan, are you going to say the technical term for the the thing that's not what we're talking about now? Not montage when you just cut. Mean you know, it? like like if I if I show you doing things in a room and I cut to your hand tapping the table, then I cut to you sitting at the table, then I cut to the cat walking across the table. 
Are you talking about an insert? No, I'm just talking misensine. Oh, misensine, yes. That was just a term misensine. that was thrown around a bunch. So maybe I didn't mean to steal your thunder. No, no, no. There, Explain misensine because uh, it's it is the yeah. it is a term people will hear thrown oh. around quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. If you read anything about movies, so misensine is different than montage because misensine is just like like I was saying, it's just like Nathan sitting at the table, and here are all the different things happening right in this room, like right, right now, and and it's not like we're cutting from Nathan to. Nathan's friend Jake on a faraway train coming right. to visit Nathan. And you're like, you're putting the pieces together. Oh, Nathan's waiting for his friend. You're not doing that at all. Missing scene is just giving you information about maybe how Nathan is feeling or mm-hmm. like something going on inside the scene. The dull drums of life yeah. in his office as he sits there and crumples right. up papers and right. taps and yeah. stands up and paces. And well, I should say just- Or, but sorry. There's can a fly I, buzzing yeah. around. Yeah, all that stuff. Or, or, I mean, an action scene is always missing scene. Mm-hmm. You're not getting a long, I mean, usually you might get an action montage, like a training run, montage at Rocky. But if you're watching an action scene, you're getting all the pieces of things happening in, you know, the room where the two men are fighting it out. Right. So. Well, the problem, the reason I didn't bring up that term is because people argue about what it means a little bit. So the other way you'll see it used is just all the stuff of the like this all the stuff that makes the scene the scene like the scenery the lighting the fingers on the it, that's the way that you'll often see it used and it's one of those i think there's some famous guy had a quote like missing scene it's the thing that means it's the fancy term that means exactly what you mean it to want it to mean when you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> whatever so i just wanted to be, be, people be aware you'll you'll hear it mean a couple of different things but yes another thing that i think is really important and helped me a lot because I've always liked film even as a little kid and like obsessively created little movies in my head that never made it onto any real movies just mm-hmm. so you know maybe but someday maybe someday the great Warhorn Media Film Studios but until then it's all in my mind but one thing that helped me understand movies was when I was in this college film class and the professor said hey you know how much film ends up on the cutting room floor when they're making a movie it's a ratio of about 10 to 1 you throw away 10 times the film that you actually that, that that actually makes it into the movie. How much time, energy, money, manpower, resources go into actually getting what's on the screen onto the screen? Well, a ton. A real disproportionate effort to what you actually get. So, right? So you shoot 10 hours of footage, you get 1 hour of footage out of it that you want to use. Mm-hmm. And that what that means and what the professor's point was was you don't treat movies like they're extremely intentional but it's extremely intentional because they're going to shoot 11 seconds of footage and they're going to say no i want that one second i want to make sure that all the effort at lighting and sound and acting and directing goes into forcing the viewer so to speak to watch one this one second Mm -hmm. so that means that when you see a scantily clad woman and there's like a, a prominent shot of her breasts well guess what it's not accidental like it took a lot of effort to get that in so you got to think more about like the propaganda of movies and the immorality of movies. And when you see something that's vile, you've got to think it took a lot of effort to put that vile thing there and make sure that I was paying attention to it. It or, wasn't like accidental. You or know? when you even see, like to use to use Ben's naughty example, let's say that it's actually doesn't seem that scandalous, but it just catches your eye that there's an attractive woman. Sure. You might think, oh, well, they just had some extras and the attractive woman happened to be happened to move past. No, the attractive woman was told to stand there. She was was cast. She was cast. Mm -hmm. She was dressed. A call went into central casting, which is a real a real place for the blonde bombshell type to fill this role of extra. Right. And then the costume designer talked to the director who said, we want her in a jean skirt and a red top. And then make sure it's tight fitting. Made, make sure it's tight fitting. That's not tight fitting enough. We're sending her back to costuming. That's right. Don't come out until you you got it right. And then she was told to walk three paces and stand on a little piece of tape that they'd put down on the stage floor, pretend like she was filling up her cup. And then they filmed, like Ben said, they filmed 10 times more footage than they actually used. And somebody had to make a very intentional choice. Well, our hero's in the foreground talking, and what might be nice is to have some eye candy in the background. 
And actually, she's doing something particularly provocative or interesting here. And so we're going to choose to cut to his face now and give everybody a little treat. Those are all intentional. Yeah, Yeah, and it's worth talking about it from the angle of immorality and not just like, well, what's the meaning of this movie? Because you got to realize that immorality is being shoved in your face constantly with most movies you see. I mean... Yeah, and a lot of the immorality has a story reason. Mm -hmm. That's right. That is used to justify it. So you have the the blonde bombshell and the red top and the jean skirt doing something in the background. She was cast. She was. It was all staged. It was all perfectly designed to, to do that. Then we cut to the hero's face, and he it tells us something about our our hero, <laughs> right. right, or our villain, or whatever it is. And so, well, that's a story moment. And so the justification is well, you. It's actually doing work to mm-hmm. tell you something about his character, his taste, or you know what's good or bad about this character, but also it's just there to get a rise out of you. It's yeah, what you right. Well, the way to really begin to notice this is to watch like a PG movie or even a G-rated movie. You know, watch like a a Disney, not Disney like the princesses, but like a Disney Channel movie, and you will start to. And I don't want to put people's minds on filth too much, but if you start to actually think about somebody had to choose that. You are realizing everything you see is a choice, right? Mm-hmm. We we watch behind the paywall for Sandy at the movies. We watch Disney's Clone Wars, and you're probably avoiding talking about this mm-hmm. because we don't want pe- people to stop. <laughs> uh, uh, are you going to talk about Ahsoka? Well, I was I was just going to talk about any number of the female characters in that. Yeah, well, that's a fascinating example because I think my brain, which knows cinema pretty well and knows how these things work and know that somebody said, all right, actually we want Ahsoka to be in uh, tighter fitting, more revealing clothes. And, and it's CGI, so somebody had to design it. But you still kind of just naturally have the feeling like, oh, well, oh yeah. that's what Ahsoka's wearing. Just happened yeah. to be what she was <laughs> she wearing. She put that on right. today. She put on today, exactly. <laughs> now, now, Disney or that show ends up actually taking huge strides toward modesty as you see a lot, uh, or, or toward, let me, toward visual modesty. Mm-hmm that you see this the current wave of feminism pushing right which is not to be equated with actual modesty nope. <laughs> but you do see like even in a show like that as it progresses those characters will dress more modestly just like you'll see that sort of thing in uh Disney Princess is another good example you will not see Belle or a Jasmine or a little mermaid that are anywhere near as scantily clad as they were Mm-hmm. you know, in the 90s mm-hmm. because of the way that feminism, in this case for the better, uh, a very rare case, mm-hmm. <laughs> but a very rare case for the better has clumped down on that sort of thing. But even then, I mean, just that fact, I think should put you in mind that absolutely everything is a choice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely everything is a choice. Somebody had to decide that. Somebody had to write that in. Somebody had to draw it. Somebody had to costume it. Right. Well, that makes that that's what begins to make you feel icky about, like I was saying, a PG movie where or, you know, like that's so Raven or whatever it is now, where it's, you know, like one of one of Disney Channel's teenage girl shows and the teenage girl like her skirt doesn't go over her knees. It goes it's shorter than that. And you do just kind of have the feeling like I was saying about Ahsoka, like, oh, well, I guess that's what she would wear. But then you start to think. Somebody made that choice. That's Prob- what they wanted. Prob- not, to, not to be all me too about it, but it was probably a man. And it was probably a very powerful, wealthy man. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah. Somebody told the person to walk into the room and strike that pose. Like, we could have preserved her modesty. We could have used the shot where the shirt didn't ride up. I don't want to fixate on modesty so much, but it's, it's well, a handy it, it's thing a to key, talk about. It's because- a key place because once you start to... If you can be sensitized there, you can begin to, it it is a very essential place to become sensitized Mm. just for the sake of godliness. And once you become sensitized there, then you can start to see it in other storytelling decisions that may not be so nefarious, but just, hey, these are intentional things. Everything is intentional here. There is nothing that happens in frame that's an accident. And if it did happen as an accident, the choice to leave the accident in was still a choice. Well, that's what I'm, th- I'm, I'm actually remembering various editing jobs that I've done even for Warhorn or our church. And it's like, you shoot enough footage 
nobody has to be trying to be a jerk. Now, this is this is not just one experience. I've had this experience multiple times. It's one of the things that maybe people who do any kind of visual editing don't talk about. But I've I've had this happen a lot actually, where if we had girls in the shot, whether or or women, I should say, if we had women in the shot, you know, whether it's I'm filming like our Christmas concert at church or something. There's like things that people do. They raise their arms, they bend over. You will you will if you're shooting enough footage, you will get things that shouldn't go in. And you have to make very conscious choices. I mean, you need a mature person doing it and you need the mature person to then say, oh, well, we can never use that because this person didn't mean any harm. Nobody meant any harm. Nobody dressed badly, but just the way the light caught the whatever, we need to take that out. Well, that's part of the dangers of a camera. Yeah. It is like it, it, like, it, is, it is dispassionate. <laughs> that's, that's right, actually, because when you're looking at things, you make, if you're godly at all, you make, you, you make choices not to see things that mm-hmm. you see. And, and you make and many of those choices. Rapid choices, micro choices. Yeah, rapid choices. choices. Yeah, they're That's rapid, right. they're micro. They're uh, the things that if, you, if you've trained yourself, they're intuitive choices or they mm-hmm. feel intuitive. If you're a godly man, you actually look away from things every day. Some of it you may not even think about. Like you go to Walmart, you walk past the poster you, or you walk mm-hmm. past the lady. Yeah, but, at a certain point, if you've worked hard enough, some of those choices be, by God's grace become subconscious. And a good camera operator, good like with a steady cam or something, actually can make some of those choices for us. But more mm-hmm. often than not, especially on an amateur production like the ones I work on, the camera is just set up and it's going to capture what moves in front of it. What moves in, in front mm-hmm. of it. And Hollywood is busy intentionally giving you permission to look at things you ought not to look at. And if you, again, if you're godly, you wouldn't, you choose not to notice right. in everyday life. Well, let's, I think we'll be able to talk about more of some of these things as we answer our other six questions. So question number two, what is especially powerful about the medium of film? We already kind of talked about it, but. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, and I feel this in each one of the conversations that we've had, we in describing what's distinct about it, we are describing what's powerful about it, mm-hmm. right? What is powerful about any artistic medium is what sets it apart. Yeah. And makes it what it is. It's the camera and it's the edits. Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, it's what the camera can capture and what can be communicated through the edits. And so, and where we started, how it combines so many different things. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, where I think we especially maybe want to focus on the human face and body language. But, well, just to give a simple example of that, how many people, how many times in life are you? sitting six inches from someone that you don't know that well who's sobbing. Jake a little bit more because he's a pastor, but not that much, right? Before movies, let's see, you had your wife, you had your kids, you had your husband, you had a few experiences like that in life. But movies have really removed, I don't want to say a modesty uh, veil exactly, but it's like I can now watch someone cry intimately watch someone experience emotion intimately i'm not sitting in a stage watching them from far away watching them from a balcony i'm not sitting in the front row and watching them be human sized but a few feet away i am looking into their eyes the window of their soul and i am watching them emote and it's something that's never been available to us in in the history of the world right you could paint somebody undergoing something very emotional and very intimate but then you have a single, frame. a single shot, right? You can pay actors if you're the king to, in, in like Hamlet or something. You can have actors come and act real close for you. But even there, there's this natural sort of barrier between you and the material that cinema, at least ostensibly, at least it seems to, it gives you the impression that it does. Yeah. Remove it. Yeah, it gives you the sense if you can suspend disbelief that you're actually looking in on something private Mm -hmm. in a way that you can't suspend that uh, when it's the stage. You know that these are actors and actresses all the time. You're aware that they're actors and actresses on a stage and you're aware of yourself out being outside of that. But the illusion of that real intimate, I'm seeing what goes on behind closed doors here, or I'm seeing a moment in reality that, you know, in these people's lives that I can relate to maybe, but I'm not having any impact on and they're not interacting with me. Mm-hmm. That's the illusion that. And I'm able to enter into it in a powerful way that 
I mean, I think what I, what I, what I want to say, what's powerful about the medium, everything. I, I really think you could argue cinema is the most powerful medium. Now, we've also said that about music and mm. about like whatever we happen to be talking about. I think Nathan wants to say it's the most powerful medium. But in terms of instant impact, in terms of I can, I, I'm just going to make you cry, like a Coke commercial can actually do that to me if it juxtaposes the right images and shows me the right things. And it can mm-hmm. suddenly make me intimate with a refugee family that just needs that Coke because <laughs> they've made it to America finally. Child like, serving in Africa a, a child your donation of yeah. Well, exactly. You can write about that child in, in Africa and, you know, you can accomplish a lot in a few paragraphs, but it takes some time to make me feel that. You can write a song about it and the music can kind of in an intangible way get me there. And some music is very powerful. But to just suddenly put me in Africa with a starving child or to see a woman break up with her boyfriend and just be sobbing, like that's something that was rare if available at all before the 20th century. And it is a fundamental thing that we have to put up with in our lives. And am I saying that all cinema is inherently voyeuristic? Eh, yeah, probably. Does that mean I don't think that you should watch anything? No. But I think you should be careful. You should re- realize that you're dealing with something very potent and therefore very dangerous. Well, a lot of what's being shown to you are the kinds of things. Uh, I, you've used the word gossip, mm-hmm. even in describing uh, the kind of thing that we uh, do with our uh, with the vill, right? But a kind of okay gossip where you can kind of see mm-hmm. uh, behind the scenes. But it, it it is in that voyeuristic sense. It's a lot like this passage in Augustine that I love to talk about, where he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And he's distinguishing between the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And one of the things that he talks about is well, the lust of the flesh is really gratifying. The flesh, less of the eyes is just that hunger mm-hmm. to know things that are not yours to know, to be intimate and familiar with things that are really uh, one way or another forbidden. Sinful curiosity, the kind of curiosity that, you know, and what he talks about as an example is that, that, that becomes, say, fascinated with death and will stop to see a corpse on the side of the road. Now, what, what's drawing you to that? It's, there's no, good instinct there's nothing in beautiful there's nothing good there's nothing what you might gag you might throw up you might any number of other things so what is it that's drawing you to that it's this strange curiosity about something that's beyond you or maybe not really for your eyes to see that's drawing you to that's drawing you to it that impulse uh you can find in all kinds of places in your own life on social media when you are drawn to know things that just normally in the normal course of if it Facebook didn't exist or Instagram didn't exist, you wouldn't know anything about what your ex-girlfriend who lives across the country had for breakfast this morning. Mm -hmm. But now you do. And that's not entirely good and healthy. And part of what the movies give you is that hey, there are just a handful of these really intense emotional moments in our lives mm-hmm. where somebody close to us actually dies or we experience that heartbreak or we experience that joy of getting married or a son being, or whatever it is and they're ours and nobody else's. Mm-hmm. And movies let you enter into that sort of thing vicariously in a way that is incredibly potent and also very cheaply earned. I can get I can come home at the end of a long day and be like, I need to relax. Let's watch someone die in someone's arms. Actually, let's <laughs> let's skip to that part. <laughs> Cuz it's so powerful. And let's have the most potent medium known to man presenting me that for maximum effect with music and image images juxtaposed and l- let's just have something transport me right there. I mean, it's crazy. And then you put on top of that the fact that the oftentimes movies actually are showing us the corpse on the side of the road, like gruesome or nasty right. or violent things that we shouldn't see or sexual things. But then you take a step back and you realize just it's it's kind of scary and fascinating and just a thing to be aware of. Like someone before the 20th century, uh, how to say this? I'm a, I'm a newly, me and Ben are both newly married men, right? We have literally hundreds of portraits of intimate marriage that we've watched. And we've watched a husband and wife just like hang out with each other. We've just seen what they're like. 
are they flirty? Are they not? Does he want to swat her on the bottom? Does he, are they, do, are they just like kind of cold? We've watched that intimately over and over and over and over and over again in our lives. And we have a ton of like reference materials, if you will, for what that looks like. And that's something that simply wasn't available to people in, in that kind of uh, volume or that kind of potency before cinema and especially before home video became Mm -hmm. thing i mean there's a big difference between reading about the bennett's marriage and just in some random you know godzilla movie waking up with a couple in bed or something like that i'm not talking about immodesty now i'm just talking about to jake's point you know the immodesty of what we actually allow ourselves to see and am i saying that that's all bad no we do a podcast you know the ville where we get very intimate with our characters and allow people to see very intimate details of their lives. Well, yeah. hopefully you have, I mean, even you and me growing up got some time like seeing other people's marriages up close. Absolutely. In an appropriate way. And sometimes the movies do that themselves right. in an appropriate way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, we're talking about the power of it and we can always fixate on the power of any art form for evil mm-hmm. and to be put to evil uses. But yeah. that art form also has many powerful uses for good. What you have in cinema is, as we, we like to say, is it's an empathy machine. It's mm-hmm. the most, it may not be able to affect your mind or, or your heart on as deep a level as another art form in terms of uh, last, in a lasting way. But in terms of surface access to your, to quick access to your emotions, in terms of being able to jack into you like the Matrix, yeah. cinema is the best. And, and, still be able to effectively communicate or teach something Mm -hmm. for good or evil. Yeah. It's really potent, really powerful. It's not in terms of actually being able to, to change you or to work on you on a, on a real fundamental level. It's not as powerful as the written word in that ultimate sort of sense that, and we talked about that on our literature podcast, you know, there's a reason why God chose the written word, Mm -hmm. but man, it gets in there fast it well, does get in and there hard. Fast. To take the, the generic example from earlier, if you want to communicate the sadness of a child starving in Africa and you want to do it in two seconds, cinema is your man, right? Like uh, immediately. Take you, the child with the distended belly and put a fly, have a fly buzzing on their face right. like all those commercials that we grew up with in the 90s. And we could be thinking of nothing and see that and we could instantly enter it into it, into, into it emotionally. You can't write a piece of music you can write a piece of music that moves you, but that actually communicates that idea at the same time. That's you can't really do that without music, without words or something, right? Um, you can do really abstract. You have to things. pair the music with an image or with <laughs> That's words. right. Right. I mean, you can say this music's ominous or this music reminds me of the wind or something, but you wind can't. Wind or thunder, you, right? Some trains, but it, but it's impressions. Now, our third question, which we've already been talking about this whole time, is what makes this medium dangerous? And I think the obvious thing to say about it is. It is so quick. It is a hard overhead medium. It is so quick to make you feel sorry for that child that it doesn't then necessarily do a good job, at least not if it's used irresponsibly, of letting you know why that child's there, what the causes are. I mean, you really actually why do- Why that child deserves your sympathy. You do actually need the written word, even for something like that, like to really understand mm-hmm. it and to have the ideas communicated in a clear, concrete yeah. way. You can't beat the written word for just describing his conditions, telling you why, you know, you can pack so much more information into the written word in a way that cinema actually, with all its tricks, with all its jump cuts, with all its associative juxtaposition, it's pretty hard for cinema to tell a complicated story of of politics or of, you know, the human machine. And what it can do is propagandize you by giving you emotional impressions. Right. And by truncating all all of the complex ideas into a really simple and emotionally compelling story that leaves you with a, a sympathy in a particular direction. Mm-hmm. Right. That sympathy can be ideological. Right. That sympathy can be moral. That sympathy can be any number of things. Like movies are great at making you sympathetic or em- empathetic mm-hmm. with uh, with a with a worldview or with a, a an ideology or with just a a moral outlook. Right. Well, I think the thing you have to be careful about is Jake's not just talking about bad cinema or irresponsible cinema. I think cinema, I think maybe the point I want to make about the dangers of cinema is that it is in fact such an effective gateway to your heart that sometimes it will manipulate you 
even in the best case. Mm-hmm. You know, right. it's actually pretty hard to show the child with the flies buzzing and have any response but sympathy. Compassion. And of course we should have compassion, but if there are complexities of any kind, cinema is going to have to work pedal pretty hard uphill to try and bring those in and make you understand them, actually. Yeah, it takes a lot of your own self-control if you're going to avoid just being conditioned by images that way, because they will just condition you if you're not thinking about it. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons that God forbids and specifically talks so much about physical idols because graven images, graven images, mm-hmm. yeah, that you see with your eyes. I mean, we all know we can make an idol out of an idea or out of a concept or out of a person, but images are so easy to make idols out of. They're well, so easy to if you think about be moved just, by. Just think about a children's uh, a children's story bible. Mm-hmm. What is a children's story bible that has pictures of Jesus? What is it communicating about Jesus? Well, I mean, so much. Right, and that's just one static image. Is he soft? Is he gentle? Is he? Does he have beautiful, long, flowing hair? All of those sorts of things. Like it's inescapable. What is it communicating about Jesus, and what is it setting up? What is it teaching your kids about Jesus, how he is? And so, you know, idols, graven images are so easy. Uh, the the golden calf at the bottom of uh, Mount Sinai was not uh, made to represent a false god. That's right. It was made to represent the God who did, in fact, do all of those plagues and parted the Red Sea. The people just couldn't bear the tension of waiting and dealing with the God who is consuming the mountain and fire. And they wanted something, a mediator, something between them and and him that they could, that could resolve that tension for them. And God won't have it. Right. But that, I mean, that is like, if you think about images as resolving tension, that's probably a really potent and helpful way to think about about movies mm-hmm. in general, about video, about film, about cinema. Because, man, there's so much tension that gets resolved simply by seeing that the camera is deciding for you everything about how you feel about what's on that screen in that moment. Everything that we've talked about up to this point, right? Is it looking down on the person? Is it looking up at the person? Is the person crying? Is the person... Where is that person standing in relation? Is he above or below this other person? The camera is telling you so many things about how to feel. It's resolving so much tension. You, you know intuitively how you're supposed to feel about this person because of all the things the camera is doing, the image is doing to resolve all of that tension about that person for you and reduce such irreducible complexity down to a simple idea. Right. Mm-hmm. In a moment. And it's going to tend to, because it's visual and because of the way it works, favor the most emotional idea. You know, I was trying to think of an example. The only one I could come up with is, let's say you read a description of a dad disciplining his son. You could feel any numbers of ways about it, depending on how it was written. Let's say we just saw a straight shot of dad spanking his son and we see the son crying. Well, we're going to instantly feel bad for the kid. Yep, actually, because we're going to see a face, a human face in pain. And that's going to be our gut reaction. It's the the movie's actually going to have to work pretty hard to make us not feel that way. It's going to have to spend like 15 minutes having the kid be a total brat or or something. Well, I mean, and then also work really hard to make you understand dad's compassion, dad's tenderness, even in the midst of discipline. And probably it's going to do something clunky and stupid, like just make dad regret it. Right. Hashtag. Hashtag Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid. Well, some of that, though, is just the way that you start by telling the story. Like some directors, I don't know, some directors just immediately tell you a different story by the way that they're even shooting things. Mm -hmm. Like typically, the kind of story you're talking about will be told with a close-up of the kid's face, crying, you feel the stuff. But if you have a wider shot, it makes you feel more ambivalent or more like, why is the director not giving me a close-up of the sad kid? Right. And then, in other words, the director can instantly make you start thinking a different way if he's choosing to. Yeah. You so, you have it from an angle where you can't see the kid's face. That makes a big difference. Like you said, you have a static shot backed up. Then we have a little bit more of a feeling of a clinical sort of here is mankind in well, all its, its glory kind you know, of thing. Yeah. Uh, we did that episode on Yankee Doodle Dandy and it's got the discipline shot, right? First of all, brat, 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 right. brat ruins everything, brat ruins everything. You've got it coming. You've got it coming. Blah, 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 I'm even more of a brat. Oh, you've got to come. Oh, no. No, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then when we get it, we're going to be way over in the corner. Mm-hmm. It's a big wide shot in a very busy room. Right. 
you know the it, kid's face is actually gonna go away from us yeah it's or I, I almost want to say that it's mm-hmm. that the face is off screen at that point. Like it might even be cut off. Right. I don't remember exactly, but it certainly turned away. Well, and we're it's a straight on shot from far enough away that what they're going for and what they achieve is it's funny. And yeah, they have all this comedy. they have all this dust coming off of his bottom so that your your eye actually goes to that. Yeah, and it trails away left. So it's 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 uh aligned right mm-hmm. and then the dust drifts all the way left across the <laughs> the screen. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So there's all kinds of ways of storytelling it, but I don't know, are most directors going to be a good story? So some of it does come back to like, are you going to be a good storyteller? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be responsible? Is most of what we watch made by really good storytellers? Well, probably not. Uh, yeah, well, no. We've said uh, before in some ways that the, this is the most potent. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's the least potent. Yeah. And so it gets in quick and yet it doesn't seem... T- any one thing doesn't seem to have such a lasting impact. And yet, how do, how do we reconcile the potency and the way that the our culture has been so driven and shaped by this medium over the last hundred years? Is it just the, I want to say it's just, it's not any one thing in particular. It's the nonstop, yeah, I think constant. It's, it's the potency of McDonald's. It's, it's everywhere and mm-hmm. it's cheap and it's easy to, it might not be easy to digest, but it's yeah. easy to eat. It might, it might not be very nutritious, but now we're all fat. Right. Yeah. E- exactly. Yeah. And so cinema, no, I don't think it actually does have the lasting power of like a great novel or even a great essay or a great piece of writing or a great piece of music, but it gets in quick. And if you, you know, like just watching one movie in your lifetime where you see an act of fornication isn't actually, I think, going to be as damaging. It's still bad, but it won't be as damaging as reading a book about fornication, say. But we've all seen, even the nicest of us, even the ones of us that grew up in the most um, protected, protected homes. homes, we've all seen countless fornications mm-hmm. over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so I think it is just the, the easiness and the ubiquity. Guys, I'm going to, th- I think we've actually basically answered the questions, the other four questions. Um, so we're going to talk about what makes this medium dangerous. We've done that. Uh, how do you use this medium in a way that honors God and serves people? Well, don't be a dummy. Understand it's very potent. Uh, understand it's almost easier to lie with it in some ways than it is to tell the truth. Tell the mm-hmm. truth because yeah. it's so easy to evoke a quick emotional reaction. And life actually isn't about quick emotional reactions. Even someone who's dying in the streets, like, it's complicated one way or another. It's complicated. And cinema is not very good at showing you that. How's the medium most often abused? I think we've spent the whole time mm, pretty talking much about, talking about <laughs> all of the abuses. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, if you could say one thing to any aspiring practitioner of the medium, Ben, what would you say? I, the only something generic comes to mind, like fear God, mm-hmm. but I don't know that that's especially helpful. I think it's a start. You know, <laughs> yeah. It is. It's the start it, of everything, but. It is to me the most difficult. I mean, you want to just say big things like tell the truth. Yeah. Well, definitely. what I want to say is like, you've got the powers of Gandalf. Don't just make fireworks. You know, like this is a potent medium. And yeah, it's a clunky medium that's expensive and involves a lot of people, but it's also easy. Like the tools exist for it. You know, mm-hmm. everybody knows how movies work. And they know how to make them. So don't take all those things for granted. Like what I want to say is listen to this podcast, actually, um, mm-hmm. or whatever this thing is. Like realize what you're playing with, realize the potency of it, and use it well and be intentional about it. Because even somebody like Peter Jackson that's just cobbling together as much footage from as many different sub-directors as he can, he's accidentally creating associations. That's right. Right. That's the mm-hmm. thing about a sloppy director is they're not not telling us how to think. They're not not training us. It's like an uninvolved father. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's the same principle. Don't yeah. be an uninvolved father. Right. Yeah. It, dad dominates the home by his presence, by his absence, by his involvement or lack of it. But right. that, he is the defining reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the defining reality of movies today, especially popular ones, is that the fathers are absent, actually. They just shoot a bunch mm-hmm. of footage and then they try and put it together in a way that's borderline or irresponsible, I really think. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't extend to the Bourne movies, Ben, because that guy knows how to cut together a bunch of random footage in a pretty compelling way. Actually, yes. But it does con- extend to all of the people that ripped him off. It does, absolutely. Because they were just like, oh, we can... We can do whatever we can We can do want. that. We can just chop together a bunch of footage in a blender and 
Yay. <laughs> Your movie People stinks. believe it's great. They do. They yep. like it. Okay, final question real quick. If you could say one thing to any partaker of this medium, Ben, would it be any less generic than fear God? No. <laughs> I mean, okay, I'll be a little more specific. Pray more about what you watch. Pray more. Pray, 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 yeah, pray that God will protect you and help you to have discernment. And I think for a lot of us, movies and TV shows are a place we go where we don't have to think and we don't have to be on guard because it's when we're winding down at the end mm-hmm. of a day. And that's a bad way to use most visual entertainment because mm-hmm. it will sink into you. It has a design. And if you're not on guard, it wins. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Jake, yep. anything you want to add? Be in it. Yeah, it's just be an active participant. Be active, yeah. not the, passive. Yeah, don't be passive. Don't partake of it in a passive way. Enjoy it. But also, you know, if you feel out of your depth hearing us talk about these sorts of things, study up on the grammar of it. Mm-hmm. Pick some movies apart, ruin some, pu- dissect them, let the frog die on the table, whatever. Yeah. And train yourself to be active. It's sort of like what I said on our on our literature episode, uh, read with a pencil in your hand, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You may even actually read, watch a movie with a pencil in your hand just to keep you not 100% in it. Mm-hmm. it occasionally just so that you teach yourself to be how to be an active participant and ask yourself those questions what's the camera telling me what's the what are the edits telling me what's the what's the music telling me what's the score saying here yep and if you do that a little while you may dissect a few frogs and kill them and you may lose the lose some enjoyment and some things that aren't as you may suddenly realize oh lord of the rings is kind of clunky and i never noticed it before but you will come to a more subtle but also i think more lasting enjoyment of the form like you'll actually be able to enjoy what directors are doing and and yeah. when it's done well when you see the choices that are made you'll appreciate it on a deeper you'll level you'll appreciate actually. the choices that are being made mm-hmm. and you'll do a better job of protecting yourself too yep so godliness is better than enjoying lord of the rings movies right <laughs> i think paul said that yeah so. i think <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhere <laughs>